You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to the podcast Be Real It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer And I'm Noah Ballard And we're here today as we are pretty much every week to discuss three movies of a similar genre. This time, what, how did you come up with this this one, Noah? We've done a weed category before, but this one's got a, a specific bonding agent. Well, I noticed that um, Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> is streaming on oh. HBO? Netflix? Which HBO. Like all great projects, it starts with you noticing that. Yeah. And then I was like, I, well, I've never seen Dude, Where's My Car? And I read a little about it. And I was like, oh, it seems like a... A stoner odyssey. And we're a little late here for 420, but, you know, it's a podcast that could be evergreen, as it were. Look at you. Look at you. That's better writing than 99% of Dude Wears My Car. Um, So, yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. And we're going to talk about Inherent Vice. Um, Yeah, stoner odysseys here. We've done cult weed movies last year. We did, uh, what, Half-Baked and Bong Water and How High. But this is more about uh, going on a journey, headed to a place. Solving a mystery. Trying to, trying to. Um, trying desperately to solve a mystery or to, to eat a hamburger. Exactly. And uh, so Marshall Schaefer, who's a film writer, is going to join us in a little bit to talk about Inherent Vice. He has a, he has a stirring hot take about where it belongs in the PTA canon. So I'm excited for that conversation. Anything else we got to get out of the way, my man? Uh, do you want to, like, take a, a brief detour into the ethos corner? Sure. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. So what's going on with you, buddy? Um... I haven't prepared any remarks. Oh. I guess you could... I'll, I'll plug the fact... I published a piece on Silence of the Lambs this week that I worked really hard on. I love that movie to death, and I reviewed like the Criterion co- uh, Collection version for Pop Matters. Um, and we're going to talk about Red Dragon coming up, so I'm probably going to reference the fact that I wrote a thing about it. But yeah, that's out if anybody wants to check it out. Um, you're allowed to lean into the things you've accomplished, Chance. It seems you're so like... Oh, I published this thing about this thing that I'm passionate about. Oh, <laughs> yeah, a movie I've seen fifty times, and I spent probably twelve hours trying to come up with something cool to say about it. I appreciate your permission. I'm excited about it. What's up with you? Um, well, if we're plugging our own side hustle yeah. things or main hustle things, um, <laughs> no, it's the side. This is the main. Couple of books on your radar for this summer. Uh, Tell me, put them on my radar. Two of my clients. Um, Sunel Barnes is a memoirist whose uh, memoir, Monsoon Mansion, just published uh, earlier this month. Uh, so that's available uh, on Amazon and any of your local independent booksellers. Cool. It's a memoir about her a riches to rags story growing up in the Philippines. Pretty compelling. People seem to love it. Um, and the other one coming later on next month is Nick White, friend of the podcast, yeah, frequent of guest, my pal, one-time guest, 
I feel like I talk about movies with him a lot, though. Sure, and sure. I like I watched all those sexy Michael uh, Michael Douglas movies with him at AWP two years ago. Oh yeah, I had that great theory about how Fatal Attraction would be like Nightcrawler if it came out today. I'll never forget that. Nick White, you are you are in theory you are a recurring guest on the pod. Yeah, and uh, yeah, his short story collection Sweet and Low, blurbed by National Book Award winner Jessamine Ward, uh, comes out. Yeah. So buy that too. Sweet and Low and Monsoon Mansion. Sweet and Low is all over my Twitter because of you and Nick. Um, well, he was just profiled in the Wall Street Journal as short story collections turning the tide. That's that's great. Good for you. good good for you and good for Nick. Absolutely. Anything else we got to hit? Where'd you get I that think shirt? We just is go back to we stop being self indulgent and we go back to uh, being self indulgent. <laughs> good good plan. <laughs> okay, let's run. Speaking of self-indulgence, you want to start with inherent vice? Absolutely. Do you want to synopsize this? Because I don't. It's not possible to synopsize, I don't think, and it's a bit beside the point. But I can give you the setup. So this is, uh, what, 2014 uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So the one before Phantom Thread. Based on a Thomas Pynchon book of the same name. And it follows the... uh, the picaresque stoner detective Doc Sportello, who uh, who lives by the beach. You know what? What what L.A. beach town is he in? Do we know? Oh yeah, it has a funny name. Yeah, we open with Doc high on his couch, which is a is a motif of uh, of inherent vice. Uh, but Doc's a private investigator, and in the opening scene, his uh, his ex girlfriend. Shasta, played by Catherine Watterson, comes back to him, and she's like, I think something's about to go down with this real estate developer named Mickey Wolfman, who I'm having an affair with, Um, and can you do anything about it before it happens? And what unfolds is, I don't even know why I'm trying to describe the plot, but what happens is a sort of like simultaneously plotless and overplotted story where you're diving into details but remembering them and figuring it out is not really the point what's more important is like the atmosphere and the themes of la real estate and the death of the 60s and the you know new capitalism and just how and and police brutality and how does a how does a good-natured hippie survive with 1970s los angeles dawning all around him If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that. Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So wh- where would I uh, find him? He's a technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. You got a spare picture I could borrow? Ah! Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's anything to add? Um, no, I think that pretty much encompasses all of it. <laughs> You're so exhausted by this movie. I really am. I, I saw this movie in the theaters when it premiered uh, and yeah. had not really thought of it since. I remember like walking out, out of the theater and I was like, huh, 
And then I never thought about it again. <laughs> and then I watched it and remembered very little of it this time. And it's, it's, um, it's pretty insane. It is pretty insane. And you know what, Chance? It's not groovy to be insane. <laughs> it's very true. Um, so the way in which this movie is a, is a stoner odyssey is interesting because... Is it? Yes. Well, because the other movies are... And we had this discussion when we did our cult weed movies. Is that they're, they're made by people prescribing like what stoners lives are like on their adventure, but they're not particularly um, confused or shaggy movies. They're very short and very tight and everything actually kind of wraps up. This one is sort of made with the like, how high is doc is a question you could have for the full two and a half hours of this movie. Right. And he's like supposedly a detective. Right. And, He'll make notes like a woman will explain that like, oh, this thing is named this, which is this in Spanish. And he'll like take a note that just says Spanish. (laughs) Yeah, we should say Doc is played by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, Right. So I was texting you about Joaquin. What were you going to say? In a what? In a performance I would describe as uh, thorough. (laughs) Yeah. We were texting before about this. Do you think Joaquin Phoenix is an attractive man. He's kind of a kind of an optical illusion face. I think he does. Cause if you don't know Joaquin Phoenix and you haven't seen this movie, um, he's got a very like apparent scar on his lip that makes him both like terrifying and like sort of intriguing at the same time. Yeah. looks like a battle wound from like gladiator times. That's why he was so good in the film gladiator. Exactly. Um, yeah, and he his sort of move in this movie is to constantly, like... I wonder if his chin is the only part of his face that's clean-shaven because he just, like, has this, like, confused chin-stroking face through everything. His head's always cocked up, and he, he just gives the perfect performance of someone who is, like, slamming against the barrier of his own intelligence and sobriety. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's very good at that. But at the same time, like, he is delivering lines that, like, I... Th- you can't understand a lot of the time. Well, they're in their own, they're in sort of an obsolete vernacular, (laughs) if you will. Yeah. Two points for that one. And they are. But they're speaking in like, um, you know, like in brick that, uh, Ryan Johnson movie. Of course. Yeah. They like speak in like sort of an affected Philip Marlowe, like totally, you know, totally kind of thing. And they do that in this too, but I just don't think, like, this one, it's so impenetrable. Like, they don't really be. give you any... Yeah, they don't really give you any key to, like, understand some, like, what are maybe major blot points that are wrapped up in a... Oh, was he tight? Like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, he was... I didn't know he was tight. What, what do you think tight means in that context when they're talking about... Um, whomever know. they're talking about. Because God knows... Know. There's a thousand characters. Everybody's in this movie. Everybody gets a chance. The movie works better when Doc is in scenes with people who play foil to Doc, especially in the way he communicates, I think. The best scenes in the movie are with Josh Brolin, I think, inarguably. The worst ones are with Owen Wilson because they're too similar... His, like, go-to is he just does the Owen Wilson voice in a whisper. Yeah. And it's, like, so goofy. Yep. 
But the thing is, I think that Owen Wilson is actually like the true Achilles heel of this movie because so mm. he so he plays this character who um, Doc is called in by his wife because he's supposedly died, um, and they're former heroin addicts, and he and she's raising the kid alone, and then it becomes very clear that this tenor sax player played by Owen Wilson <laughs> is not dead, um, but that he's part of this crazy conspiracy. Um, but the whole movie, regardless of the actual plot, hinges on the fact that Doc is going to be a good person and deliver this dad back to his family, right? Sure, I guess. I think I think that's the true kind of, like, grounding agent of this otherwise, like, unintelligible thing. Um, but <laughs> Owen Wilson is not... Uh, he's hey, not, wow. Yeah, there you go. He's not playing... That needs to be, like, Mark Ruffalo or somebody. Somebody where I can really feel good about the fact that this, like, fuck-up has actually done a good deed. But, like, it's not clear that Owen Wilson's going to make that family better. No. And there's also that weird thing where, like... So this movie has, like, a lot of weird notes. Like, in a lot of ways, it has the commitment of something like a Boogie Nights, but it has, like, the sense of humor like a punch-drunk love where, like, she shows him the picture of the baby and he, like audibly and like viscerally <laughs> screams that's so funny it comes out of nowhere. i don't agree that that's no i just think it's such a I, I think it's a that moment and the the more pancakes thing he that josh brolin does are two of the most like tone deaf like overacting moments okay, okay. when he wakes up in the sand and there are like 40 LAPD officers and Josh Brolin in the megaphone goes, welcome to a world of inconvenience. <laughs> well, he wakes up next to a dead body. Right. Also that. <laughs> but the line, welcome to a world of inconvenience is kind of the line that should be at the beginning of every one of these movies when these people start their odysseys. Right. It's, well, it's all again, it's all this sort of like weed smoking hipsterdom, like against a bureaucracy right. or some sort of you know, thing that has its own rules. Yes. And what happens is that, like, by sheer luck or will or something in the middle, these all these characters come to discover the the truth at the end. Right, right. Um, and thematically, I think, I mean, I think it's a beautiful movie. This goes to the pension, but you have the... I, I wrote it down because it's really great. Joanna Newsom is sort of the... Uh, is the narrator of this movie reading a lot of the pension, mm-hmm. reading a lot of the pension uh, writing. And he's at this, he's at the, it's the scene where he's, he's gone to find Owen Wilson and it's at a, like a right wing gathering or like the right wingers are in the back room of like vigilant California or something like that. And she's over top. Uh, Joanna Newsom's talking over top just about how, you know, the specific ways in which the sixties have been corrupted. And the line is, was it possible that at every gathering, concert, peace, rally, love in, be in, freak in, up north and back east, wherever, those dark crews had been busy all along, reclaiming the music and the sexual desire to be epic every day, and that they could all be swept up in the ancient forces of greed and fear? Gee, Doc said aloud to himself, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) See, I think the best part of this movie and like the performances and the kind of like the tone of scenes that I think really work is when Joaquin Phoenix is like against a woman Mm. because you're really getting, I think the writing is probably, it's probably in the writing that it's so well done that you have these sort of rounded characters all choosing to like use 
what little position they've been given to sort of, you know, attack him or defend themselves, yeah. which is really interesting. And some of them are like, all I have is sex, so here's sex. Or there's like a moment where that makes sense. And otherwise it's like, let me put this like big guy in a room next to me. But maybe that's still about sex. Mm. But they're all very good at sort of like playing with that, but also having those moments of don't you get that like what you've done to me is the reason I am this way. Right. Like, there's that great scene with Catherine Waterston, who is uh, daughter of, you know, law and order, big timer, Sam Waterston, uh-huh. same eyebrows. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> True. Um, she like gives this impassioned monologue where she's talking about dating this real estate magnate. And like, she starts saying like how powerful it felt. And then she slowly like, breaks it down to like, but at the end of the day, I was just like wearing short dresses and like being passed around to various rich men and their friends. And you know, like you think I've done something shitty here. Well, like what were my choices? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's fascinating. And if you want to break down what the stoner like is to, I mean, whether in, in film or in real life, someone who's like a career stoner, it has to be somebody who, like, n- wittingly or unwittingly, has made the kind of, like, compromises that Doc has made. And he's compromised his relationships with other people, you know? Well, I almost think that it's the whole... The eye with which this movie is seen or captured just sort of has this cynicism about an era that I think we tend to romanticize. Oh, totally. And in this way, it's just like... No, things weren't, like, freer and more open. It's just, like, people were just more fucked up. (laughs) Uh You know? People just were on more drugs. That's the sort of... That's where we were. And also, like, you know, the problems that they faced were just sort of covered up by that. They didn't, like, not exist. Right. We're always going to look for that that horrible thing, which is sad. Yeah. And our best moments might lead nowhere. It's so interesting, like, the, the movie kind of puts forth that Doc and Shasta, the happiest they ever were, is when they were completely strung out, and the Ouija board told them to call a phone number, and they ended up in, like, a, a bay window while it rained. Like, a little mission that just, like, died on the vine. Anything to say about where this fits with PTA, or should we leave that to Marshall? Should we, where do you want to go with this? Well, like I said... Moments ago, I feel like this movie like never really picks what it is in terms of tone, mm. and it seems like PTA is at the point in his career where he can get Reese Witherspoon to be on set for four days and right. like do a couple scenes with her, you know, um, and get Eric Roberts to like be, of course, like the the guy stuck in the the kidnapping of his own making, Wolfman. you know. Yeah. Wolfman and the yeah the guy from The Wire and uh, the night before Michael K Williams What's his? Michael K Williams he's great yeah Wolfman <laughs> yeah his whole neighborhood had been knocked down this is sad but this is like well let's let's go to the interview hey Sanch what's up Doc you know you have no case here so if you're gonna charge him you better otherwise you have to let him go. Mm, Sanj, remember who this is you're talking to? That's Bigfoot Bjornsson. Renaissance cop. I know he is. So, what's the beef here exactly? It doesn't have much to do with your specialty, which I understand is marine law. We got plenty of crime on the high seas, Lieutenant. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping 
but we can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Either way, it's high profile. Yeah, but um, given your history of harassment with my client, this will never make it to trial. No, I think we could probably take this all the way to trial, but with our luck, you know, the jury pool will be 99% hippie. Well, our guest today has written for culture websites like Slash Film, Slant, Crooked Marquee, and many more. But today he comes on to be real to extol the virtues of Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice and the hippie scum therein. Marshall Shaver, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real treat. <laughs> of course. Um, so this... Your reason for being here is back in December, around the time Phantom Thread came out, you published a piece on Slash Film, uh, standing up for Inherent Vice, arguing in the unpopular opinion series on this site that Inherent Vice is is top-tier Anderson. So let me ask you to start. Um, When did it dawn on you that this movie needed a defense? Did you see some lists you didn't like, or did you sort of feel like it was just um, fading away behind some others? Um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, I got the idea around the time that the post-Phantom Thread re-ranking of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography was coming out, um, and I kind of noticed it was slipping more towards the bottom a little bit, um, and as much as my editor really wanted me to argue that it was the best Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I couldn't quite go there, but okay. I did want to, I did want to make the argument that it needs, it needs a, uh, it needs a solid group of fans, because it ha- they're out there. Uh, and they haven't quite mobilized in the same way that the uh, punch drunk love fans have for it. So how do you, I know you talk about this a little bit in the piece, but how do you sort of conceive of the various uh, PTA stands? Like some people prize, did you say like, like Boogie Nights and Magnolia is kind of one crew and the master and there will be blood is kind of another? Yeah, definitely. And um yeah, read the piece to to get the eloquent version of this. But my, <laughs> um, my TLDR is that you kind of have, um, you know, various groups of film bros who like to virtue signal their uh, their reference points. You know, generally it's like Boogie Nights, uh, Magnolia is kind of one crew. Um, yeah. Boogie Nights more Scorsese, Magnolia more Altman. Uh, then yeah. you have a more Kubrickian inspired kind of a, a rigorous formalism with There Will Be Blood and the Master. Uh, and both of those are kind of more traditional styles of accepted genius filmmaking. Uh, mm. styles of styles of filmmaking that people are very comfortable thinking of and describing as great. But especially for Inherent Vice, um, it's a Punch Drunk Love is a little bit more singular, even if it's not necessarily quite as effective for me in that kind of a way. But Inherent Vice is pulling on some really eclectic influences um, like uh, Zucker Brothers comedy, like um, The Police Squad and Airplane. Um, and I would even argue I, there's this interview that he gave in 2012 talking about the master being like, I just really want to make a Ted. Like Ted is really fun and enjoyable mm-hmm. and funny. Um, so I don't know. I kind of think inherent vice is his Ted in a way. So it's, it's a, it's a ribald comedy, um, but never, you know, sophomoric or juvenile. Uh, all the jokes are, are really well done. There's a lot of really clever, inventive visual gags uh, yeah. that are really rewarding people who are paying attention. And I think that that is, uh, that's a, that's a style of filmmaking that we should recognize and celebrate in its own way. Yeah, his movies from the beginning have always had like strikingly, subversively funny moments. Um, but this is probably the most outright comedy. Is there is there are there is there a moment or two you can think of, Marshall, that um, really kind of 
signals his uh, comedy virtuoso directing chops from the movie? What springs to mind? Yeah, um, the scene that I always think of um, is, you know, pardon my uh, pardon my language here, but you know, the scene where the Josh Brolin Bigfoot Bjornson character is more or less deep throating uh-huh. the chocolate banana. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Yeah, I think about the way that um, you know a less experienced director would would film that scene. It would be kind of lurid. I mean, almost like girl strip style. The the grapefruit scene. It's really yeah. kind of like luxuriating in it. But when you watch the scene, he's actually out of focus. But he's in the he's in the front of the frame. The focus of the scene is actually uh, the Joaquin Phoenix Doc Sportello character just watching. And it's very interesting the way that it kind of mirrors us as the audience, where at first he's just kind of like, wait, is this this happening? Like, does he does he realize <laughs> the the phallic implications of this? Just like yeah. how, you know, the innuendo of it. And then it just eventually it, turns to this like outright revulsion and just shock as sure. it just becomes like just such a mirror of the of the sex act. <laughs> Uh, and, and also, how long will this go on? I think both yeah. the audience and Doc are thinking. <laughs> exactly. And then when he eventually kind of like chokes on it, it like really gets deep in there. Uh, <laughs> gosh, it just feels uh-huh. me. I wanted to break something down a little bit more specifically. I feel like a person like myself who has never cracked the spine of a pension book um, knows to say about this movie, well, it's really hard to adapt pension uh-huh. because it's so postmodern, you know? Um can you talk a little bit? I mean, you said in the piece that you have at least cracked the spine of one. What are we talking about? What is so hard to adapt about pension? Yeah. Um, well, I I admit in the piece that I was assigned to read one uh, for like a freshman English seminar uh, that I did not finish. Uh, I'm that sure it was a me. noble effort. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, but after uh, after seeing Inherent Vice. But, you know, I think now that I kind of have a general idea of of the backbone of this novel, more or less, uh, kind of know where the story is going, yeah. um, I think I can really kind of dig into this and kind of, uh, kind of get a hang of it. Um, it's difficult uh, to adapt in the sense that it's just so free-flowing. Um, and, I mean, you, you get a good sense of it in the movie, Um you know, characters just kind of like flow in and out. It's never entirely sure of what their what their function is, how important they are. Everyone's kind of treated right. more or less the same. Um, so many red herrings, so so much minutia that ultimately doesn't add to much other than just kind of throw you off base and and disorient you. Um, and I think that that is something that is very interesting for someone like a Paul Thomas Anderson to dive into because. So much of his other movies, I mean, every little detail was so important. Everything was so, so um, intricately wrought. And this is just kind of throwing it all at you. And you, it's just kind of up to you to, to figure out what's important, what's what you need to latch on to. Um, but ultimately, you don't really need to because it's less about the actual, the plot points that it hits and more about the overall feeling that you get and immersing you in the in the vibe, in the in the feeling of what it was like to, to live in this specific time in this specific place. Um, and inherent bias right. does that, especially for, um, 1970 Los Angeles. 
I should say one of the things I absolutely loved in your piece about when you're writing about what the movie is not is that it does not contain uh, Run Through the Jungle or Fortunate Son CCR <laughs> music cue, um, which I thought was such a smart way of saying, um, you know, people have signified the late 60s in such a heavy handed way for so long. Um, do you have a favorite sort of uh, subtler signifier of the year 1970 in here? Um, I think my favorite moment is whenever they are stopped by the cop, um, when Japonic oh, is right. kind of driving off and going nuts, um, and the cop kind of shines the flashlight in and goes something, it's like, groups of three or more are now defined as a cult. Uh, and it's just, <laughs> it just puts you so in the, in the moment of this, um, the right. Manson hysteria, um, of, you know, the, it's, it is passed as an event and we're just kind of left in the wreckage of it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, the, the freewheeling sixties and the hippie era have kind of come to an end, but the people who are, who were a part of that group haven't quite come to that realization yet. And there hasn't really, nothing's really emerged to kind of take its place. So you're just kind of living in this weird, this weird undefined yeah. space. Um, I think is really fascinating and really interesting. Um, and not having really obvious signifiers is a, it's a nice way to watch something because, you know, I think about my life now and, you know, there aren't people just walking around spouting like, oh, like 2018 is blah, blah, blah. Right, uh, right. <laughs> it's true. He actually, the more I think about it, he he often picks those kind of transition times to set movies. I mean, that you have the whole thing in Boogie Nights with the... Uh, um, porn going to VHS and everything changing. The master is like what, 1948. I mean, he, Joaquin just came home. It's all very post-war. Yeah. It's an interesting strategy in general to set things when a time is dying and no one knows what's next. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know that I thought about it in terms of how much he's done that. Can I ask you about a specific scene? I watched this movie today. Um, <laughs> And a scene that, yeah, I had kind of a Doc Sportello day, by the way, just kind of sitting at home <laughs> watching this movie, uh, feeling both great and not great about myself. Um, the scene where Bigfoot kicks down the door and eats all his weed, um, very memorable, very striking. Mm -hmm. I, what do you think's going on there? I think it, it puts their relationship back in this weird weird stage you get the sense that they're probably going to interact again even though this whole sure. <laughs> golden fang situation seems to have come to some sort of an end if not a if not a satisfactory conclusion um yeah. i don't know maybe it's just like uh the power dynamic between them um i think it also kind of you know reminds us that the bigfoot bjornson character is completely ridiculous I mean, even, uh -huh. I mean, the first time we're introduced to him is it's him on the cop show or him in the commercial, uh, right. you know, you think of this era, it's a hassle, man. Yep. Uh, you know, this era of kind of like swaggering cops and, you know, he just wanted to be, he wanted to be a TV star. Um, right. you know, it was, it was a point for him to play or a part for him to play. Um, not so much a job for him to do. Okay. Marshall, let's get down to it. So rankings can be overly official and silly <laughs> but can i ask where uh where does inherent vice sit in your personal just your personal mm -hmm. pta chart uh i think it's number two behind boogie nights um or why is boogie nights it might be favorite? number it might be number three i don't know the master is great too i love the master it too. Is. but i think boogie nights is probably my favorite um i think it's 
Alexander Payne said something to the extent of like, um, a filmmaker's first film is, it might not always be their best film, but it's usually their most interesting because it's the story that they've been waiting, you know, 20, 30 years or something. Right. To and it's not technically his first film. You have Heart Eight, but I like to pretend that doesn't exist. It's the um, first one he got to do exactly what he wanted. Exactly, yeah. The first one where he had, you know, complete control over it. Um, and just the, the energy of Boogie Nights is just, it's so infectious. And the way that it conjures up the time and the place. I mean, it's a lot of things that I that I like about Inherent Vice. Um, I think maybe done with a little bit more of the of the control, and maybe with a little bit more of a thematic resonance um, sure, than sure. Inherent Vice has. Wait, that can't be my last question because I just remembered uh, the PTA is pictured with you in your Twitter uh, yeah, profile. Yeah. If you don't mind me saying, do, what, what what did you have? Did you tell him that Inherent Vice is your personal? reclamation project can i ask what that experience was like So that picture was actually taken before the world premiere of inherent vice uh yeah i i took a trip this it was my senior year of college i took a trip with some friends on a whim we're like oh let's let's go to new york film festival let's go see inherent vice world premiere um and i was mingling about in the lobby and there he was just chilling before his world premiere and like wait that that's paul thomas anderson so i made a friend take a picture of us and i like went up and talked to him uh, and I, I go back and forth between uh, deciding whether he's smiling or frowning in the picture. If you, <laughs> um, it, I think it's more of a Rorschach test uh, for uh, for how my day is going. If he's smiling or not, but he's very nice, That's, generous, all things considered. Sure, I was not going to bring up his facial expression, but you are the more noticeably happier of the two people. I think, um, but you're over the moon. I mean, yeah, he's that, that, that's he's meeting a. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. Uh, Marshall, thanks for hanging out, man. This was a, was a fun chat, and uh, hopefully it gets some people to, to think a little more about this movie. Uh, that would be the dream. Whoa. Are you all right? Am I? Are you? Ordinarily, we're the ones asking the questions. And your question is, which side am I on? Good question. Wrong answer. So, Chance, where do you land on this? And did the conversation sort of push you one way or the other so i like marshall's point that this may be the closest manifestation to pta's actual personality he's kind of a silly valley kid if you listen to interviews with him like right he'll go on and on forever there's nothing particularly um you know i mean i think he's an incredible artist there's nothing particularly highbrow with about the way he like presents or talks and i think that like this movie if you give between like this kind of indulgence and magnolia indulgence i'll take this any day now i would also take i think five movies ahead of it and i'm sorry i i can't i don't think i, I was talked into this but i think that for, for what this is it's i'll give it a good good i'm comfortable with that I I can't I can't go with you. I know you can't. You've been texting me I think all are, day, letting me know I'm not going with you on this. I think there are some like well done scenes, and there's some funny writing here. But like it's it's ungodly length at two and a half hours. You know, I mean that's what makes these good stoner movies, and this is like the first one I think we've really watched that has like been more than ninety minutes. Sure. And I just think that that sort of 
it made me a bit claustrophobic and sort of checking my watch at moments. I think there are enough scenes in here to like cut down this unnecessarily fatty movie to make like a good movie, but because it's so long, I'm going to have to give it a good bad. I can't believe you want to give this hippie a haircut. It's shagginess is what it has. No, I think there's like a much tighter movie in here that is made yeah. unnecessarily obscure and unfollowable <sighs> by a uh, a film auteur so preoccupied with his own ambition and making his own um, what's that Altman movie, The Long Goodbye, yeah, yeah. that he just just threw whatever he had at the wall and kept most of it. I'm not going to change your mind, but I, I think if you tell Inherent Vice, based on a Thomas Pynchon book, to just be tighter, you're just asking it to be a different animal entirely. Agree to disagree. All right, baby. Uh, well, thanks to Marshall for chatting about that. Um, now, you and I, we also have uh, no qualms about going lowbrow, as evidenced by our next two films. Am I right? Absolutely. I'm not above it. And I think I enjoyed both of these movies probably way more than you did. Um, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> you expect us. You're such a snob. You expect a certain, like, grandiose feeling when you go to the cinema. I just, like, want to be, like, amused and, like, made to wonder for 90 to, like, 100 minutes and then go home. You want to ponder such uh, important questions as... How old are they? Where do they live? Right. <laughs> what 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 demographic are they in? Are they like recent college graduates or are they like high school seniors? Yeah, Ashley Kutchin and Sean William Scott are anywhere between 17 and 35 in this period. At any given time. Yeah, they could be much older, too. You really think I'm a snob? I don't think I'm a very snobby film goer. I think you go to movies for like more meaning than maybe I do. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not above... Uh, like, I love the scene where they're... They're just like, we got to talk about Benicio, but Benicio and Doc are like talking about this conspiracy with like Vegas land deals and like racist <laughs> subsidies from the government, but they're about to mack down on tequila zombies. Yeah, you'd really want to, you probably want to drink to get fucked up before this meal. Yeah, that's, uh, that's me. I'm, I'm down to dive all the way in for the meaning, but like, I'll have a tequila zombie with my meaning. So, Dude, Where's My Car? The year 2000 on HBO Now. It was the year 2000. And <laughs> Ashton Kutcher and Sean William Scott were at maybe the peak of their whatever celebrity. Yeah, nobody knew it yet, though. <laughs> right. I'm sure they, they thought both they thought were. It was still going up. That Kutcher, he's moonbound. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to play Steve Jobs, I bet. So, yeah, and Sean William Scott from the American Pie movies. Um, yeah, it's this is one year after American Pie and two years into that '70s show. If you want, kind of a to know where they're at. Sure. Any other movie follows them at some age between seventeen and thirty-five, <laughs> <laughs> living in a like a house, and they wake up one morning after really having like gone for it, having really tied one on the night before, um, and they go outside to, like, go do whatever. Well, they first discover that there's, like, a weird man living in their closet. Gene. Gene. And then they realize that they have a lifetime supply of, like, pudding snacks in all of their drawers. Yeah. 
And after eating, like, a lot of those pudding snacks, they, like, decide to go outside and they look around and uh, Ashton Kutcher's car is gone. And um, he asks him, dude, where's my car? Which is also a line, if I may mention it. You uh, may. From Harold and Kumar. Mm-hmm. They're directed by the, uh, the same, same person. Same person. That person being, who? Like, Danny, Danny Liner? Sure. Yeah. But yeah, and then so they, they I know when they, it's their anniversary with the twins who were their like <laughs> girlfriends who are both like brunettes and white women, but they're not, they don't like, they're not identical or anything and they're different, like vastly different heights. Yep. And it's Jennifer Garner and I don't, do I know who the other sister is? She looks familiar. She's probably been in another teen movie. Uh-huh. Marla Sokoloff? Sure. And they ha- so it's their anniversary with them, and they owe them gifts, but they left the gifts in their car, or so they remember, but they can't remember anything. And I forget where it goes from there. Well, yeah, they just go around retracing their steps, and people all come up to them being like, you guys had $200,000 last night, or you guys were so cool last night in your tracksuits, and they're kind of slowly pieced together. Well, what happened? Kind of. Sort of. They sort of do. Um, and what happened was like, I think by 2018's standards, a like pretty raucous and pretty bigoted evening. Last night, Jesse and Chester had the most unforgettable time of their lives. But this morning. Dude, where's my car? The best thing about this movie is the title. Yeah, dude, where's my car? As proven by the fact that a bunch of... when I, I was 10 when this came out, and people would run around the playground just going, dude, where's my car? It taps into something that like you inherently understand about the movie, while I don't think anyone has seen it or remembers it. But the poster and the title are just like... Like, I know that it, it happened. Like, this movie was released, and I, like, knew oh, about the marketing happened. campaign. But, like, after seeing this movie and, like, actually experiencing, like, what transpires in this, like, sort of, no pun intended, well, pun intended, half-baked, like, hangover-style right. movie, it's, it's, like, it's, I mean, it's, well, it's vile, but it's also, like, just nonsense. Yes. But it's, like, sci-fi. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, so which is kind of funny. Spoiler for "Dude, Where's My Car?" But one of the things that that happens is they're approached by, um, well, they're approached by some women, and then they're approached by some men, both of whom seem like they would be in like dueling '80s Bowie music videos uh, in the background, um, and they're just like, and they're playing on like Eastern European like xenophobia. Uh-huh. And they're say, where is the, let's just call it a transmutilator, because I don't remember what it is, and it also doesn't matter. Um, right. They're like, it brings balance to the universe, but then it's like, oh, what crew wants it for good? What crew wants it for evil? And what third crew is just a bunch of Scientological weirdos who wear bubble wrap and pray to the god Zoltan to bring balance to the universe? Right. Yep. And then the evil, the evil women... Promising sexual favors to yeah. any men they encounter, mm-hmm. including not Jerry O'Connell <laughs> and his group of jockey doofuses and this weird like plot line in this movie that's totally unnecessary about them 
having girlfriends, but also being in love with this like other not Tara Reed person. Right. So let's talk about not Tara Reed is very accurate. Um, it, it's it's just not Tara Reed and not Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> Against all odds. Um, they but they both look strikingly like those two sort of character actors, shall we be generous? So before we get into like what's problematic about this movie, let's just talk about what's strange about it. In not being able to answer the question, how old are they? We lack explanations for like why these like seemingly like 27, 28 year old like fuck ups who have no qualms about like, you know, coveting sex with strangers like haven't consummated their year-long relationship with the twins right yeah they haven't had sex with them and they're very like intrigued by sex thus making them make maybe closer to teenage but i think if this movie was like remounted in a more cynical and darker way you have like jeff who lives at home or something (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) Um, but the, yeah, it's just a weird thing of this movie being PG 13 clearly. And also as you, right. as you pointed out and I noticed as well, uh, nobody smokes weed in this movie except they, Dave Herman makes a dog smoke it. Michael Bolton from office space makes a dog smoke weed. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that is him. I mean, his dog is a willing participant in the smoking at least at well, this point. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting as, as cause like, that's what people that they encounter describe them as is stoners. And they talk about all these, like, crazy hijinks they got into, like, when they were, like, fucked up. Right. But you never actually see them under the influence of drugs. No. And you, and they don't even appear to be, like, physically hung over from, like, one of the most rowdy nights they've ever had. No. Like, that's what's funny about, like, um, The Hangover is that, like, they're also dealing with the physical effects of this hangover. For the subject matter, it is, like, an oddly juvenile movie, which is in, which is reflected in the... I mean, it's obviously fucking juvenile. It's Dude, Where's My Car? But it's, like, more juvenile than you think. Like, right. Sean William Scott well, is a, kind of doing his best, like, not Stifler, but, like, Garth, you know, from, yeah, he's from doing Wayne's Garth. World. Which is just, like, kind of, like... You know, Dude, good, sweet, good-hearted, blank. They're, they're both very kind of like blank. Yeah, I mean, they're both like good-looking young men. They're gumpy. I mean, this movie is like, yeah. Well, this movie is interesting because it is sort of more of a like market research analysis than it is a film, and it's like, <laughs> yes. it's a movie made for teenagers who like want to watch like adults be goofy, right? So you cast a bunch of adults, but you like. They're playing. It's as if a teenager made this movie, right? Like, and they took it to you know the distributor, and, and the distributor's like, "Well, don't they need to have like jobs?" And it's like, "Well, there's that part about like they like don't deliver pizzas, you know, but they don't worry about rent or like groceries, you know, they don't ever seem to like have any worldly needs, no, and constantly like making a mess like wherever they go." I think these two need a Bigfoot Bjornsson to like oh, yeah. really be a consistent foil. Would have been good. Well, it's also it's just like not if you're not gonna go full bore on making this an R-rated movie. Yeah. Like or like putting another wrinkle in it. Like what's the fucking point? Right. Like if like I mean we'll get to Harold and Kumar in a second, but like that's a movie about race. Right. You know, and like this movie's not about anything. 
This movie's just a premise. I watched this movie and I wasn't sure if I had watched Dudes Where's My Car. Like it's it I it's been a while since we've done such a in one ear out the other film, I think. For me. Yeah, a movie without any weight it was a weightless film. Absolutely. Yes. But it wasn't pleasant either. Mm. It was like weightless no. imp- there was a certain like like do something or get off the stage kind of <laughs> Yeah, do <juice. laughs> Exactly. Yeah, this movie has interesting politics because, on one hand, like they're they have uh, they're like at a stoplight next to Fabio, right? And two thousand, <laughs> and they're trying to like out like masculine him, like and like they rev their engines and they like you know put their arms around their companions. For him, it's like a beautiful young woman, and for them, it's the it's Ashton Kusher uh, and Sean Patrick Thomas. <laughs> Sean William Scott. Tom Everett Scott, Patrick Thomas Scott. Um, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, and then he kisses her to be like, oh, well, I'm like with a babe. And the two of them look at each other, say, fuck it. And they like make out a little bit. And Fabio's horrified right. and speeds off. Yeah. And it's like, and then they look at each other like, I love you too, man. Exactly. Like, that's chill. Which is I think a very, like, progressive sort of, like, yeah, don't subscribe to, like, you know, basic social pressures of, like, what relationships have to be like between two even heterosexual men. You're Jesse and Chester. You have your own who's on first routine with the dude in the suite. Do what you want. But then... Exactly. But then the movie, like, hard pivots into being so fucking bigoted about transgender people that it's, like, it's, like almost unwatchable they like have they cast a female actress to play a man transitioning to woman Mm -hmm. uh and to like properly create the effect of like not having gone through hormone therapy yet they just dub her voice with a man's voice right and they're so like horrified by this person and, like, there's a lot of, like, cuts to, like, the bulge in this otherwise, like, yeah. attractive woman's, like, crotch area. And it's, like, it's it's a little it's a little mean, can I say? I don't mean to sound like a snowflake, but it's just a little mean. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, this movie is, like, a little mean-spiritedness short of being like Van Wilder. Like, Van Wilder is, like, a crueler movie than this. Like, the... Sure. The adolescent take of this movie it keeps it from like weighing in too hard on anything. But like no, it's it's not above uh exploiting anyone for a laugh. Right. And it like and it also then as the movie sort of because it's so long and it's not an episode of a sitcom, you just realize that it's so only considered it's 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 only um Interested in women as like objects oh, as well. Of course, of from like course. every relationship they. I mean, but that's like that's almost giving to call this movie misogynistic is to give this movie too much credit, right? Like I don't think it means to be anything other than like a teen boy fantasy, but that it is a sort of sad. Yeah. To see like the movies that I mean, you and I came of like this movie was targeted at people like maybe a little bit older than us. Just a hair. Yeah. And that's kind of sad that, that 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 was the truth of this movie. It's targeting 
the supposed misogyny of teenage boys of burgeoning teenage and men. that is sad that it's just like oh yeah that's our market that's this is what they'll like right but what came first you know the misogynistic 17 year olds or the movies that reinstilled those values it's tough to say it's a it's a, it's a coin toss there we go um so what, what do we rate this this is reprehensible reprehensible a bad bad from me cheers same Okay, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Let's do it. I've never seen this movie. Oh, interesting. I saw it. I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. I saw it like when it came out, and then I think I probably saw it stoned in college. You know, it fits right into the genre we've chosen. Uh, Harold. I mean, the, the the synopsis is in the title. Exactly. Um, two two guys. I, it's not clear whether they are stoners. Kumar is definitely a stoner. But basically, these two are behaving in a much more normal way. They have more normal lives than Jesse and Chester's kind of like blank slate are they the real aliens lives. Right. Oh, they're both on like career trajectories of one kind or another. And like their like real lives, quote unquote, like come into play outside of the inherent ridiculousness of this you know, one night totally. of trying to find white. Ca- I mean, it's a, it's an adult movie. I'm glad to see that, you know, we've grown up a little bit between efforts here. Congrats, Danny. And I grew up between Monday and Wednesday when I watched these <laughs> um, and I got ready. Right. Um, so yeah, Harold's played by John Cho. Uh, Kumar is played by Cal Penn. Um, both of whom today are doing very funny things. When you consider these movies, Cal Penn was like a, some sort of like junior member of the Obama administration, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> and John Cho is now like uh, doing like dramatic art films, um, and they're both. Yeah, well, like, he's also in like the Star Trek movies. Harold's an investment banker, uh, banker who the movie starts with uh, Ethan Embry and this other white guy in the office being like, "Let's stick Harold with our work on like a Friday at six um, because he's just hired and he's Asian, and we think we can push him around." Um, and then we cut to to Cal Penn being interviewed by Fred Willard. Of course, Fred Willard is in this movie um, for med school. And wait, who? Oh, Fred Willard, right? Is the as the dean of yeah. whatever. Um, and Cal Penn kind of acing the interview, but not giving a shit about it at the same time, and ultimately walking out with Fred Willard like very offended that he clearly like took a phone call in the middle of it and did not care at all about the results. And you find out that they. Uh, these two are roommates in where, what Jersey city are they in? I have no, well, that's the funny thing about this movie is it's clearly written by somebody from New Jersey, but it's not made by anybody who's like even spent incidental time in New Jersey. (laughs) I want to ask you more about that later. Um, yeah, but so I think they're supposed to be in like Jersey city or hobo. Yeah. That's what it seems. Very like shadow of New Yorky kind of. Right, with, with these two but they doing. still like work and live in the like the burbs. Right, right. Um, Ish. But they've just got a bunch of weed and they want to spend the night together. And John shows like I gotta get some work done. Uh, and Kumar is much more the uh, the instigator of fun. And they get really really high and uh, they see on TV a commercial for White Castle and they think like this is where we've got to get our munchies fixed. The specific place. So they venture out, and it's been replaced by a burger shack uh, with a very opinionated Anthony Anderson working the drive-thru window. Um, and that's not the first time they won't find the White Castle. And then they just drive up and down New Jersey uh, for 90 minutes while crazy shit happens. 
Harold never got too far with the ladies. The only girls who are interested in me are girls I have no interest in. Harold! Go, go, go! Kumar never got much respect. What kind of name is that anyhow, huh? Kumar. What is that, like five O's or two U's? But tonight... In the next couple of hours, I expect both of us to be blitzed out of our skulls. <laughs> They're going on a trip. Get up, we're going to White Castle. We're starving. They'll never remember. I forgot my cell phone. You want to run back and get it? No, we've gone too far. So I, I think a good litmus test about this, these movies is like, are they better consumed like under the influence of marijuana? Right. And this one's like, whereas like you probably can like figure a certain sense out about dude, where's my car? And you'll probably just get like, you know, sort of crazy lost in inherent vice. This one, it's sort of gross Mm -hmm. and it has this sort of like bulbous quality to it in some places. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the, the, uh, the women shitting. Not a fan. Battle shits, that's not like a pleasant thing. And then Freak Show, I think, is the other uh, Christopher Maloney. Oh, right, of course. With the boils on his neck that are like that liquid's coming out of. God. Um, and like, what? So, where do you want to? Where do you want to dive in? Well, we want to talk about what's good about it. What's far more interesting than Dude, Where's My Car? Is it like this is a movie that is. Uh, aware and in some ways sensitive to the fact that its protagonists are Asian and Indian American. Um, and right. like the, the most of the people that they deal with this like shitty crew who's just like outside their apartment and then kind of incidentally follows them around are just like a bunch of like awful bros, you know, who might be like Jesse and Chester. They're more like the Jerry O'Connell crew. Um, but yeah, these they're up against the expectations of coming from immigrant families uh, and there's a lot of interesting, uh, insightful stuff that is, I think, acted out particularly well by John Cho um, as Eth- as Harold is, uh, you know, coming to be more confident, like putting his actual foot down. That's just like a way more interesting dynamic than anything going on in Dude, Where's My Car? Oh, absolutely. I think what like upsets me about this movie is that it, its sense of comedy like isn't more realistic yeah maybe mm-hmm. like i think this could have been i think the beats are there to make it like a funnier movie akin to like a national lampoon sort of thing uh not the terrible like straight to dvd ones like the originals where it's just like people out of their elements yeah you know and this one really goes for low comedy and like when in doubt, like give someone a boil that like has pus shooting out of it or like have <laughs> someone take off their top. Yeah. It's now that I think about it, there are not that many great lines. Um, no. Other than dude, where's my car? Right. When Neil, uh, Neil Patrick Harris steals his Camry. It's true. Um, yeah. Most of the acting I like is actually in the sort of, you know, what are usually kind of like throw away, convince me to do something character building scenes. I just, I find Joe like a, or John Cho, a very empathetic like presence on screen. Oh, Cal Penn too. And it's because they're being sort of abused by society around them. And they're otherwise sympathetic people who are just like at a moment in their lives where they need to 
choose to be someone slightly better. And actually one of the smartest bits of character writing, I think, is the um, at the very beginning when Harold's going up the elevator uh, with the, the Maria, the girl in the building who he likes, and there's the quick like 20-second alternate scene of like what he would say if he was effectively inviting her over that night and she was into it, um, which is just like so such like magnet i mean john Cho's a very good looking man such like magnetic acting that um you kind of think that that's in harold for the rest of the movie somewhere it's a smart bit of positioning it is it's a good like fantasy scene you know played for similar effect as like the scenes in high fidelity where john cusack like rips out the air conditioner and kills uh (laughs) tim robbins um but yeah it, it says something about him like inside right and that's that's good. And I, I think the it's also good and sort of, I think, safe in this sort of... Because I feel like in the genre of these sort of gross-out college comedies, there is, like, a sort of reappraisal that we need to do, like, in conversation about just, like, sex. Sure. And how it's portrayed on screen. And this one feels like, you know, in this guy's heart is, like, a good dude. Mm-hmm. And all of his stuff feels like very sort of like, if anything, he's frightened of her. Right. You know, and he's worried about, I mean, I guess the, the you know, the prototypical male fear is being laughed at or alienated or ostracized. As the new Courtney but, Barnett song, Nameless Faceless, tells us. That one is oh for my, you, so, buddy. Thanks. Have you, have you listened to the whole album? I have. That's my favorite song on it, though. That's your, interesting. Yep. We'll have to talk about this more in our uh, somewhat affiliated podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes I talk about movies, but sometimes I just sit. Yes. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, yeah. Um, what else about the the sexual politics need reevaluating? I mean, in a lot of ways, it is like they just want to see boobs. I think I found yeah. some girls that we can see their boobs, and that's just like. There's a ceiling on how interesting or appropriate that is, of course. Wait, so let's talk about Jersey. We can't get out of here without talking about Jersey. So I think the most unforgivable thing for me is like how unfamiliar it is with the Garden State. Um, I mean, I, th- I think Garden State's a better representation of the Garden State, which is a lot of like strip malls and yeah. houses on top of other... I mean, de- New Jersey's the most densely populated state in the country. Is it so? Yet in this movie, yes. Oh. Yet in this movie they only encounter six people. <laughs> right. And they're like, I mean, we're talking, if you're going from Hoboken all the way down to Cherry Hill, I mean, that's an hour and a half ride. Yeah. You know, like, you're going to drive through millions more people. So is this more like Pennsylvania? Like Poconos? It just seems like a, a Jersey accent thrown onto someone who's doing like a typical, like, you know, J.D. Vance sort of life okay and I, that's i'm just not comfortable saying that about like the you know the jersey rednecks okay so what do we call this movie in the end well this movie has like a very similar structure to um inherent vice does it whereas there's these great scenes with like famous people and they like have a general trajectory they're trying to hit and this one's a little bit more i think clear um, to get to White Castle. But, you, like, the Anthony Anderson part, the Neil Patrick Harris parts, um, Maloney, um, 
Smulin Ackerman, as I said. There's the cop. Uh, there's the guy who's like the black professor at Princeton. Right. There's the whole stuff about being on Princeton and like misjudging the nerds as actually like being party animals. Oh, yeah. There's the whole subplot about like the Jewish neighbors. David Krumholtz. Oh, and there's Ryan Reynolds is in this movie, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's just a movie, again, it just doesn't stick in my head. No, it's just like, he like so desperately like wants to be a Kevin Smith movie or something. Mm-hmm. It wants to be Dude, Where's My Car, directed by Kevin Smith. Yes. But it like had no, I mean, the movie was shot in Toronto. Was it? So it like had no, yeah. No. So it had no aspiration of being like so obsessed with setting the way he is. And so what you have is just sort of a mediocre, raunchy comedy with like maybe the politics of a get out, but like not nearly the movie. Not even close. Well, so maybe right. I'm being forced to go back on the point that I was trying to make, which is that like I was going to be like Inherent Vice is the best stoner movie because it, you know, it cuts back on itself and has these moments of profundity before it dips out for 20 minutes and you're like, what happened? But now that we've talked about it, there are 20 lines, 20 moments in Inherent Vice that I could stick to and these other movies just kind of pass you by on your couch and then they are over and then maybe maybe it wasn't that inherent vice needed to be shorter it was that harold and kumar go to white castle should have been two and a half hours long (laughs) bad bad okay there it is i think i thought i was gonna say bad good but like i thought i was gonna say bad good too yeah, I definitely didn't mind watching it like while I was watching it, but like talking about it with you, I have to I think I have to give it a bad bad. I feel like the other set of weed movies were at least like bigger swings. I f- like senseless as they were. I feel like the out of the 6 we've watched, if I remember your ratings right, How High is the only one that got a good good. <laughs> How do you feel about yourself? I I make no apologies for who <laughs> I am. When they put John Quincy Adams in that blender, you, uh, you <laughs> went in shit for that. I thought that was funny. Yep. We got to get out of here. Uh, buddy, thank you for this conversation, and thanks to Marshall Schaefer for talking about Inherent Voice. Boy, it seems like hours ago since we talked about that movie. Um, but you can find all the episodes of our show at berealpodcast.com. We would love it if you would check out the backlog. There's a cool uh, scrollable list on the site. If you just like watched a movie this past week and you're like, I wonder if these guys have ever talked about this, you can go on our site and find out if we have. That would be fun. That's what I would do if I was a super fan of our podcast. Um, or be like, hey, guys, I just saw this movie. What do you think of it if we haven't done it already? Please, bring it on. Um, yeah, so find us on the socials. And uh, we've got... A couple more teed up and ready to go in the next few weeks. So we will be back in your ears soon. Yeah. I hope you all had a nice Memorial Day. I think I'm going to try to put this out this week. (laughs) I hope you all will have a nice Memorial Day. Uh, I'll talk to you later, buddy. Take care.